Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 5. And we'll be looking at the first 23 verses this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, that your love is unconditional, that your character is constant, that you've been faithful to to meet with us time and time again as we gather on Sunday mornings and Saturday nights and Wednesdays. We thank you for our eternal home that's set and secure. And as we open up your word, we ask that you would pour out your spirit that you'd open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts, that our hearts would be fertile soil to your word, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Being by the pool is a place of rest and refreshment. Doesn't it sound pretty good with all this cold weather that we've been having, just to sit out by the pool on a nice, uh, warm day? I grew up in southern Oregon, in Grants Pass, Oregon, and where I grew up, there was the caveman swimming pool. The city's mascot was the caveman. There's the Oregon Caves not too far from Grants Pass, and so throughout the summer, we'd always go to the, the caveman swimming pool, and you'd swim and have a great time, and then inevitably, you'd find yourself uh, sitting by the pool for a few minutes to get a snack or get some lunch. Here in Colorado Springs, my favorite public pool is the, the Wilson Ranch pool on the west side of town, if you've ever been uh, over there. If you're lucky enough to get in, because it's a, it's a busy place, you've got the water slides for the kids, and you're by the pool, warm day, and then you sit by the pool and just enjoy uh, that time uh, together. Now, having said all of that about being by the pool, just get that out of your mind when we talk about the pool of Bethesda, because this pool is the exact opposite. It's attracted all of the lame the blind, the diseased, the paralyzed. Everybody that's physically hurting has come to this pool because they're desiring to uh, be healed. So this is really a a group that is down on their luck, that's outcast, that you'd probably not be looking to spend time with. But Jesus seeks them out. Jesus comes to this pool to show his love to one particular man. What have we seen so far in the Gospel of John? It began with the glory of Christ, that Jesus is God, that he's the creator of the universe, the incarnation of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then the ministry of John the Baptist pointing uh, to Christ. Then we find Jesus doing his first miracle. Remember what it was? Turning water into wine. That was the first sign given to us in the gospel of John. Then John puts the attention on Jesus really ministering to individuals. Nicodemus coming to Christ at night. The woman at the well having a conversation with Christ. We left off with the nobleman coming before Jesus desperate with the need of his son. His son was about ready to pass away. Now in John 5, the intention is upon this one paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Verse 1 After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after he healed the nobleman's son, he goes to a feast in Jerusalem. That was the custom for the Jews. This is the second time in the Gospel of John that we see Jesus coming to Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know what particular feast it is. 
verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. So think of ancient city. Ancient cities would build walls of protection. So with these walls, you would then have gates to be able to get into uh, the ancient uh, city. In Israel today, when you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the old part of uh, Jerusalem where the walls have been built upon throughout the ages. The walls are destroyed and then they're rebuilt. We see Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. You have the Sheep Gate, which is also called Bethsaida, where there's this pool and there's five porches. Today, there's a church there called St. Anne's Church, and the archaeologists have dug out this pool with the five different uh, porches that are there. And it became a place where people would come and congregate because of the moving of the water. When there was moving of the water, they believed that the first one in would be able to uh, receive uh, healing. Can you imagine the kind of conversations that's having uh, with this group as they're laying by uh, the water? So how's your blindness going? You know, like, so how is it being paralyzed? You know, how, how's whooping cough? You know, how's tuberculosis treating you? Like, this has had to be some pretty uh, discouraging conversations that were taking place uh, with this group. Pretty hopeless as they're surrounded uh, this pool. So this week, right after uh, Christmas, I think the black sickness of, the black plague of sickness hit our house. So my wife got sick on Wednesday with this cold flu fever thing, and then I got it. And then our younger two kids got it that are six and eight. And it was Friday night. They couldn't sleep. They've got high fever. And so they're laying on the couches uh, downstairs. I'm, I'm hanging out with them. It's, it's a sleepover that you really don't want to have, right? And they, they're sprawled out on uh, the couches. And Wyatt turns to his sister and they're, they're buddies. And he says, Eileen, I've got a surprise for you. And she's like, what is it? You know, in this half delirious state. And he's like, it's on the ground. And he's like, it's the snow. It snowed, you know. And he's like, but we're too sick to go out and play in it, right? <laughs> and I was thinking, we're having our own pool of Bethesda experience, right? I mean, these guys are watching life pass them by as they're gathered around uh, the pool of uh, Bethesda. And one of the things that you know, it's hard for us, but it also provides a benefit as all of the health care that we do have. You know, a lot of these conditions we still suffer with, but there's health care opportunities to try to be able to, to get better. They don't have this. You know, a lot of this is not yet developed. If you find your place with this kind of sickness or you're blind or you're paralyzed, there, there's not a lot that you can uh, do. This is why they're gathered in this place in verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Christ does heal in some pretty unusual ways throughout Scripture. We see in the book of Acts where Peter's shadow passed by and people got healed. Uh, people touched Paul's handkerchief and, and they were healed. These unusual ways in which God healed. Now having said that, if anybody you know, wants to sell you a handkerchief for 1995, thinking that you're going to be healed, uh, tell them to just blow smoke, right? Like 
Peter was not selling stuff. Paul was not uh, selling stuff. These are unusual ways in which God uh, healed. So we wonder in verse 4, like, what is happening? Is this legend? Is it superstition? Is it actually that an angel would come and stir the water and the first person in was healed? Uh, Ultimately, we don't know, but we do know that it had convinced a large multitude of people. There was a lot of people that were really hurting that believed that this could happen and believed that this was their hope. And they were coming here waiting uh, for their opportunity to be able to get into the water. Now, a certain man was there who had infirmity 38 years. We'll find out that he was paralyzed for 38 years and that he wasn't always paralyzed. Something happened in his life that caused him to be paralyzed, to lose the ability to walk, and he's been paralyzed for 38 years. This is a long time to suffer. And he's there at the pool of Bethesda as well. Now focus your attention on verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, Jesus saw him lying there. Jesus saw everybody that was lying there, but specifically, he saw this man that was lying there. And Christ in his ministry and his love, it highlights his attention to individuals. And it's important to know that God sees us. He sees what's going on in our lives. He sees the area of our lives that are broken, the areas that are paralyzed, but not only our lives, but everyone else's as well. He cares for this specific man. He saw him lying there. And he knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time. Not only does he see the man, but he knows his condition. And he said to him, do you want to be made well? So if you're taking notes, first point this morning is Christ's question. Do you want to be made well? Seems like an obvious answer, isn't it? Have you ever learned that there's a few questions that you shouldn't ask? Somebody's learned out there. (laughs) Like you never ask a woman if she's pregnant. Because what if you're wrong? Like, that's, I've I've been there. You don't do that. Take my word for it. You let her share with you uh, that she is uh, pregnant. If someone's pulled over to the side of the road and their hood is up on their vehicle, you don't pull next to them and say, are you having car trouble? It's like, why would I be on the side of the road with my hood up? I just like hanging out here, uh, admiring my engine, right? Also, if I'm doing a hospital visit, I probably wouldn't ask somebody, do you want to be made well? Because it's obvious. Who wants to be in the hospital? Who, who wants to be sick? Of course, this man wants to be made well. So why would Jesus ask the question? Because many times we do get so used to our condition, we're not sure if it wants to change. You know, we're not sure that we really want God to do a healing work in our lives. And if we think of this in terms of the spiritual and the struggles with sin, sometimes sin becomes so used to us in a particular way that we're really not believing or expecting or wanting for God to set us free. So for example, it may be a struggle with anger. And anger's been a part of us for 38 years. And God may come to us and say, do you want to stop being angry? Do you want to live differently? And there may be a part of us that says, yes, absolutely. I'm sick of this trap of anger that I'm in. But there's another part of us that says, I'm so used to this anger, I don't know what I would do without it. 
I can't imagine my life being free from anger. Or maybe it's sexual sin. It's lust. And God says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to live differently? Do you want to live in sexual integrity? And there's a part of you that says, yeah, I do. I absolutely do. But I don't even know if that is possible. And so Christ really asks this same question to us as well, saying, do you want to be made well? As we think about moving into the new year, are there things that we desire that God would do in our relationship with him? We would say, Lord, I've been walking with you for some time, but these are some areas that I would love to be able to see breakthroughs. And what Jesus is awakening is this desire for wellness. He's awakening this desire uh, to be able to change. In verse 7, the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. The paralyzed man only sees one possibility for healing. And that's to be the first person in the pool when the water is stirred. Now think about this environment for a while. Is you're probably getting to know your neighbor that you're lying next to by the pool of Bethesda. But when it comes to the stirring of the water, all you're concerned about is being the first one in. So what are you going to do? Like kind of punch this guy in the face so that you can be the first one in? Or, okay, now I've got pole position. I'm like right next to the water. It had to be a pretty uh, crazy scene for them as they're trying to get into the water first. And this man says, I'm paralyzed. I don't have anyone to help me in. Many times when we're looking at difficulties, we're looking at struggles with sin in our lives, we only see a few possibilities. We only see, well, maybe A, B, or C. And a lot of times we can't have any vision beyond that. But Christ has possibilities that this man has not even begun to consider. And that's Jesus speaking the word and for him to be healed. And I want to tell you this morning, in your life and difficulties, God has possibilities that you haven't even begun to imagine. In challenges in my life, God has possibilities that I haven't even begun to imagine. But we only see what we can understand. That's why God instructs us to trust him with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding because we only understand so much. It's not that this guy is wrong. This is all that he's experienced. This is all that he knows. And so this is what he's relying upon, his own understanding. And thankfully, in our relationship with God, he's the God of the impossible. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. This is an impossible command. Put yourself in this guy's situation. You're paralyzed, and Jesus looks at you and says, I want you to get up and take your bed and walk. Uh, Hey, uh, do you realize here I'm paralyzed? Is this some kind of bullying? Uh, You know, I've been teased a lot about this. Like, I'm really going to just rise and take up my bed and walk. And this is Christ's direction, Christ's command. It's our second point uh, this morning. We see a parallel of how God works in our lives as well. Is that he gives us this command of something that is impossible. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. We look at victory over sin, and many times it does seem impossible. For us, it is impossible. We say, man, I've worked on my anger before. I've tried to walk in sexual integrity. 
I've tried to not be in a place of bitterness or, or greed. But if we'll choose to rise, if we'll choose to, to get up and trust God and walk in obedience according to his word, that's when God does uh, the supernatural. So we take this struggle with anger. We take this struggle with discouragement. We get into the word and we say, okay, what does God's word have to say about anger? Be angry and don't sin. Ooh, that sounds impossible, right? That the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. But as we get into the word, we memorize a few scriptures. Maybe we begin to be transparent with other believers that we can trust and say, would you be praying for me in this way? And we begin to press into the Lord, asking that God would do a work in our lives. We're taking steps of faith that line up with God's word. And in that process, that's when God does his work in areas that were paralyzed. Now, don't misunderstand this. This isn't a, a word of faith type of teaching that some in Christianity would start to develop to mean that anything that you want, just name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it, and it's yours, right? This isn't what the scripture is teaching. What I'm talking about is areas of scripture where God has already laid out his command to us in his word, where he's saying, this is the way that I want you to be able to live. When we press into him and say, okay, I'm going to start taking steps of faith that line up with what you have said in your word, then that's when God comes and does the miraculous. You would think that Jesus wouldn't give this command, but he's testing this man's faith to see if he'll attempt to stand up, if he'll attempt to rise, even though he's paralyzed. Do you feel paralyzed? Do you feel defeated? Do you feel that there's, there's no hope? Is get into God's word and rise in these areas that he has uh, called us to. And then this is what happens. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The man attempts then to rise, and immediately then God brings the healing, and he's able to walk, and he's able to pick up his bed. The problem with this, which is going to result in Christ being persecuted, is that it's on the Sabbath day. It's going to get the religious leaders really angry at Christ. What a moment this was for this man, 38 years of not being able to walk. And then in one moment, he receives his ability to walk and also all of his muscles come back without physical therapy. Right? That's part of the miracle as well. And he's grabbing his bed and he's walking. I hope that everybody understands what the Bible teaches about healing, a biblical theology on healing. How many people were sick and needing to be healed at the pool of Bethesda? A great multitude. How many received a healing? Just one. Why? Because God's sovereign. What does that mean? God does what he wants. And he sees what's best in our lives. And so our job with physical infirmity is to come and ask God for healing. God does continue to heal and to ask if he will bring healing in our lives. And submit that to his will, saying, God, I know that you know what's best in my life, so if it's your will, would you bring healing? But let's not reduce who God is. Sometimes he does miracles and brings physical healing in our lives. But also, sometimes he doesn't heal. And we see that with the Apostle Paul. He had a thorn in his flesh. 
He asked God to remove it three times. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Can you tell me that Paul lacked faith? That's a hard case to build with Paul. He lived a life of faith, and God chose not to heal him. There's people here that weren't healed that were gathered around the pool of Bethesda. How in the world do Christians go to heaven if God always heals every physical infirmity? Eventually, something's going to go wrong physically that's going to result in us going to heaven. Praise the Lord, right? So don't believe those that will come into your life that says, well, God heals every believer. And the reason that they're not healed is because they don't have enough faith or there's some kind of sin in their life. God chooses to heal sometimes in this life. Praise the Lord. Sometimes he doesn't. Praise the Lord. Sometimes he takes us to heaven. Praise the Lord. (laughs) You know, I'm glad that he uh, does that for us. But this day, this man experiences the physical healing. In verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Ah, this grieves my heart. They've missed the point. Here this man has just had something amazing happen in his life by Christ, and they're upset that he carried his bed on the Sabbath. The Jews had added 39 prohibitions of things that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath day, almost to the point where the Sabbath became so much work trying to make sure that you were keeping the Sabbath day. So God gives this principle of rest, and then they added man's layers to it and took the joy completely out of it. To this day, when you're in Israel, if you ride an elevator on the Sabbath day, everything changes, and the buttons don't work inside of the elevator. You can't put in floor five, because that's considered work, and you're breaking the Sabbath day. Can you imagine that? Like pushing button number five is work. So what does the elevator do? It goes to floor number one and opens whether anybody's there or not. And then it closes and goes up to the next level. Church, that is more work than just hitting button number five. You know what I'm saying? So we have to be careful that we don't add to the Word of God or take away from God's Word. I think most of us this morning would say, I don't want to take away from God's word because we love the word of God. But sometimes in good intentions, we add to the word of God. This started with good intentions. We want to make sure that people honor God by honoring the Sabbath day. And so we're going to add to it. We're going to add to it. And we're going to add to it. So we always got to bring ourselves back to who is Jesus? What does the word say for itself? Where have I added to the word of God? Where has legalism entered into it? Maybe am I leading others into legalism instead of uh, pointing them to Christ? Because we don't want to be in this group where we've completely missed it, right? Where we're over here saying, hey, you broke the Sabbath day when this guy has just experienced an amazing work of God in his life. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. He blames it on Jesus. Hey, whoever healed me, he, he told me to take up my bed and walk. This is a great place to be under the authority of Christ. I'm following Christ's instructions. Christ was the one that told me to do this. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus goes incognito, undercover on this one. He heals the man and just slips away in the chaos where the man didn't actually know who had healed him. Then Christ comes back, finds him in the temple, all of these people at the temple celebrating the the feast, and Jesus finds him and now gives him instruction. Third point, Christ's instruction. And this is so insightful, is Jesus used the physical to get to the spiritual. What Jesus was really concerned about was, yes, this man receiving the ability to walk again, but also that his spiritual condition would be changed as well. And he says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. It seems that somehow him getting paralyzed in the first place was a result of some sin in his life. Now, please hear, that is the case some of the time. Like if you go out and drink and drive, things can happen to your physical body that are direct correlation to the fact that you went out drinking and driving, right? But is every physical affirmity a result of sin in our lives? No, not at all. We see that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We live in a world that's under the second law of thermodynamics. Things go from order to disorder. But sometimes it can be a result of sin in our lives. And it seems to be the case in this man's life. And Jesus says, I don't want you to keep sinning lest something worse come upon you. And we understand the nature of sin. Sin is hideous, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. Sin's going to destroy our lives. And so for this man's well-being, Jesus is saying, I want you to live for me. Now that you can walk, I want you to walk with me. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the woman that was caught in adultery. Jesus didn't condemn her and then said, go your way and sin no more. Sin no more. And this can only take place through the reality of Christ in our lives. The penalty of sin's been paid for at the cross, but also the power of sin has been broken in our lives where we no longer have to be slaves to sin. So if we take this and we apply this to sin in our lives, rise, take up your bed and walk. Begin to press into those areas in the way that the scripture has instructed us, relying upon Christ and allow him to be able to set us free from sin. Church, it's not too late to change. It's not too late for Christ to do a redeeming work in our lives and to set us free from more and more sin that we struggle with. In verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, as I read this, I almost want to just go, what? Like, he went and ratted Jesus out. That's what it seems like to me when I first, first read this. But we don't know what the motivation is here. He maybe was so excited about what Christ done, he wanted to share, and he thought, the Jews would be excited as well, the Jewish leaders. Or he may have been feeling pressure, and so he went and shared. Regardless, he goes and he shares with the Jews. In verse 16, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. This is a turning point in Christ's life and in his ministry where they really now are putting together a plot to kill Jesus. They're seeking now a way to kill Christ. Why? Because 
he healed somebody on the Sabbath day because he told this man to take up his bed and walk, carry a burden on the Sabbath day. I see Jesus at this point as a lion roaring because Christ is choosing his death, his crucifixion, and he's very willfully messing with the religious system by doing a healing and instructing him to carry his bed on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is on Saturday. He could have waited 12 hours till Sunday. This dude would have still been at the pool of Bethesda. You know what I'm saying? He said, I could have said, I don't want to have any conflict. I know that this is going to make them mad if I heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus is saying, let's do this. I'm the lion. Hear me roar. I'm choosing to die upon the cross. John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath day. He's poking at the hornet's nest. He's stirring it up. The disciples are walking on the Sabbath day, and he instructs them, go ahead and pluck some wheat to be able to eat. And that, that makes the religious leaders mad as well. Christ intentionally is walking into this conflict, and he makes this beautiful proclamation in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have uh, been working. This is quite a statement especially in the ears of the Jews. He says, my father, not our father, but my father. He's claiming that God is his father and in turn that he is God's son. And by being God's son, he is deity as well. And he's saying, my father is working, so I am working. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't take a holiday? You know, he rested from creating on the seventh day, but God never takes a Sabbath from being on the throne. He never needs to take a nap. He never stops working. Jesus says, my father's working, so I'm working. The father's concerned with this paralyzed man who needs to walk, but also be freed from sin. And so the father's working and Christ is is working. The Jews understand exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because He not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They're angry at him for breaking the Sabbath, but now they're extremely angry because of blasphemy, that he is claiming to be God. Some read the Gospels and try to make the claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Highlight these verses. He's very clearly claiming to be God. And the Jews got the message and saying, because he's making himself equal to be with God, that he is deity, they sought to kill him. In verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Jesus is dependent upon the Father. He can do nothing apart from the Father. He's completely surrendered to the will of the Father. Jesus is the express image of the Father, meaning if you take a coin and you put it into some clay and you see that image, well, Jesus is the express image of the Father. To where he says, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So when we look at these miracles and the way that Jesus loves people, this expresses the Father's heart. The Father loves this man who's paralyzed. And so Jesus shows that love 
by working this miracle in his life. And this gives us an amazing picture of who the Father is. For some reason, it's really easy for us to separate the Father and the Son, but they're one. So if you look at Jesus and you go, wow, Jesus is so kind, he's so gracious, he's so strong, he's so truthful, he's amazing. Well, that's the Father. He's doing these things because the Father is instructing him. So hopefully that leads us to a place of even greater love for the Father. In verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. One of the things that Jesus and the Father both want us to understand is the relationship that they have together and how much the Father loves the Son. And here Jesus declares, the Father loves the Son. And why is that important? Why does God want us to know that? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. When we see how much the Father loves the Son, we understand how meaningful the sacrifice is that the Father would send his Son to die upon the cross. Does that make sense? So he's saying, guys, I want you to understand this, that the Father loves me and I'm the Son. And if you think this is amazing, the Father's going to continue to show me things and I'm going to reveal his marvelous works. I think it's hard for us to understand how shocking these words are to the Jews and to the religious leaders. Like sometimes, you know, when we're walking into conflict, we're like, okay, maybe right here is the conflict. And we'll kind of walk around it a little bit, you know. Maybe we'll sprinkle a little bit of truth, but we don't really want to enter into that conflict. Jesus is blowing this up, right? He could have easily just walked away after healing this man and nobody really knows who, who healed him and goes on with his day. But he follows up and he finds the man, knowing that the man is going to tell the religious leaders. And he's like, by the way, this whole Sabbath thing, that's just the beginning of the difficulties. I'm God, deal with it, right? And, and then just so much courage and strength in the way that he's handling this. In verse 21 For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he wills. So an aspect of the Father's power is raising from the dead. It's one thing for Jesus to heal the paralyzed man and set him free from sin, and it's another from the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead. Christ will be risen from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. This is interesting. This is the position of Jesus, given this position by the father, that Jesus is the one that's going to do all of the judging. Why is that interesting? Because Christ is also the sacrifice. So he pays the penalty for sin, but then for those that reject Jesus and say, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, then Jesus is also the one that says, oh man, you missed it. Instead of receiving my judgment, you could have received my forgiveness. I paid the price for you. I took on human flesh. I died on the cross. And you didn't want that free gift. And so in turn, you have to then receive the judgment. God means it when he declares that he doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want any to receive judgment. What causes someone to go to hell? 
What's the unpardonable sin? It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means to say no to the Holy Spirit, to reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. What is the Holy Spirit trying to do? Convict us of sin and show us our need for Jesus. So the blasphemy of the Spirit is rejecting Christ, not just once in your life, but over and over and over and over and over again, continually, all the way up until the point of death, and then ultimately standing before Christ in judgment, and Jesus is saying, look, here's all these opportunities where you said no to me, where you rejected me, and ultimately now you received judgment. In verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Jews would say, well, we honor the Father. And Jesus is saying, well, if you're honoring the Father, then you're going to honor the Son. And oftentimes for us now, it's almost reversed, where a lot of people have great respect for Jesus, but they don't have respect for the Father, or they misunderstand the Father. They think, well, I can relate to Jesus, but the Father, he's pretty heavy. He's pretty scary. I'm pretty sure he's mad at me. And what Jesus is saying, if you honor the Father, then you're going to honor the Son. But also, if you honor the Son, then you're going to honor the Father. You can't separate the two. So for us this morning, as we have looked at this section of Scripture, I think the question for us is, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Is there an area of your life where we've come to a place of unbelief, not believing that God can set us free. Even in this miracle, we see that it's not about the physical. Jesus wasn't primarily concerned with the physical. He was concerned with this man's heart. We really don't know where he goes from here. We hope that his life was changed. We hope that he walked with Christ uh, from, from this moment. But as you head into this new year and maybe spend some time this afternoon and New Year's Eve evaluating our lives, let's evaluate this question. Do you want to be made well? Let's stand together and let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you pursue us, that you see us individually. We thank you that you have paid the price for sin and broken the power of sin. In areas of our lives where we can't imagine victory, we know that you have provided it. And would you give us courage to rise, to take up our bed and walk, to begin to take steps of obedience that line up with your word. And as we take those small steps of obedience, we ask that you would do what only you can. That you would bring life back into marriages. That you would give victory over things like anger and sexual sin and greed and covetousness. And we don't even begin to see the possibilities of what you could do in our lives. So would you help us to bring application? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.